All right, everybody, welcome into the Show 6 podcast where we break down the Play Pokemon Championship Series for Pokemon Go. This week, we're talking about the Charlotte Regionals, where 136 trainers came to play, the debut of Annihilate, the surprising amount of Electric-type coverage across the teams, the team composition trends, for example, the double and even triple flyers taking over the meta, and Lyle Jeffs finally getting his breakthrough moment. All that and more, so lock in. And good luck, have fun. All right, we are here. My name is Speedy's Chief 2 here with the Z Zwilus. I call you Zwy for short. Zwilus, how are you feeling? Hi, Speedy. Um, I'm feeling great, actually. I do have the week off. I am headed towards the Liverpool Regionals, and I can't wait to talk about Charlotte with you. Awesome. Well, so I am really excited to talk about Charlotte, the recap, everything that went on this past weekend. We had a brand new Pokemon coming into the meta, but you know, I listed a lot of topics there at the beginning. I want you to just <laughs> kind of take take one of those or another topic that's off the top of your head and just start running. What did you think about the Charlotte Regional? Honestly, I want to circle back to the whole like Planet of the Apes cover story <laughs> of this weekend because uh, I had people telling me that they weren't all that happy about Annihilate being released um, that shortly before the tournament because it was basically like if a Pokemon gets a newly released, it needs to be like a 24-hour cooldown before it becomes legal for play Pokemon play, as far as I'm aware. And Annihilate... Um, got released earlier than expected, earlier than um, the start of uh, the event where it was yes. to be featured. And people weren't really prepared for it, um, but it shot up from 0% usage to, because obviously nobody had it, to 33% usage becoming the premier fighter immediately. And everybody was scared of this ghost, but I feel like we're, we haven't really seen much of it. We haven't really mm. seen much of it. It was on a couple teams. Some of them made top cut, but it always felt like a liability to me rather than an asset. Uh, what did you think about the monkey, Speedy? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like the the release was definitely problematic, right? Because Niantic published comms. They said, uh, you know, the Raging Battles event will go live on the nineteenth at you know, whatever it is, ten a.m. standard time, whatever the time zone might be. But I felt like. When you publish something and that's in your comms, you should definitely stick to that schedule, right? I mean, this is a a multi-billion dollar company with, you know, 80 million monthly users. You got to think that once you publish something, you stick to it. And it put a lot of pressure on on TPCI and Play Pokemon. And uh, I was actually having this debate with another another player in the community. Uh, actually, Arrow uh, brought up a really good point. This is the, the trainer I was talking to. I said, yeah, you know, if... If TPCI doesn't follow Niantic's uh, you know, published schedule, then it looks bad on TPCI. But then he said, well, if if TPCI doesn't allow it, then they're not actually sticking to what they said they were going to do. And I said, oh yeah. my gosh, you're right. It's like a, an impossible conundrum. So um, I think the lesson is uh, take Niantic comms with a grain of salt because they are not exactly accurate. So if, if you if you know something's coming, you know, if if Reverum is going to debut, maybe look look out for it 24 hours or 36 hours early 
or late, who knows, maybe there's a problem with the release. So it's, it's a little bit fluid in those situations, which I do think is frustrating. And a lot of trainers had, had game plan for, you know, a month and a half of this season. Uh, maybe since the beginning of the season, they said, Charlotte is the only regional I can go to. So I'm going to watch all the streams. I'm going to practice. And then all of a sudden at the very last second, they have to change their teams. But I agree with you. I think Annihilate only making it onto two of the top 16 teams, if not mistaken. Uh, it's one of those things kind of like when Toxapex release or maybe when Claude Sire released. I, I feel like trainers are still learning how to use it. And it's definitely a unique Pokemon. It's got above average bulk, but it doesn't hit quite as hard as as I would like. And the pacing's a bit slow, kind of like Polyrath, because you've got Ice Punch and Shadow Ball. Uh, I've been using a lot in, in GBL. But I'm curious what your take is. Yeah, I, I do think that um, funny that you mentioned Arrow because I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet um, about him using um, an Ilab and I think one of the the challenges um, in Charlotte. Yeah. And um, the pacing um, for an Ilab is a little bit awkward because if you're not as bulky as say a Medicham, um, taking six counters to your first charge attack can make you feel a little clunky. Like, same for Polyrath. Polyrath is also just bulkier than Annihilate. So if, you, if you're, if you like, really dependent on that quick, like, one-two punch damage output, okay, I get to this move, I get to that move, maybe Ice Punch isn't for you. Um, and Arrow, I'm pretty sure, had a Night Slash Shadow Ball moveset on Annihilate. So players are still figuring out uh, the preferred moveset. I think close combat is another consideration that um, we haven't seen yet, but that might come up in the future. It's a bit of a Swiss army knife, but I do think it needs some refinement, both in terms of team building, like what is even a good core with Annihilate? I've seen a lot of Annihilate scummery in the Go Battle League, but um, people basically just, like either they didn't put Annihilate in at all, and that usually worked out better for them, or they try to substitute their current fighter with the new fighter that they expected to be the top dog, the number one. And yeah, like I don't think we are quite in a in an NFT situation where everybody invests in the apes and then two years later they lost they lose all their investment. <laughs> um, but we definitely need to. There's definitely a learning curve to annihilate, and I do think it will have um, a greater presence at the upcoming regionals. Mm -hmm. um, probably not a dominant presence, but a greater presence. And it might also be suited better to different metas. I do think yeah. this is not the perfect meta for its unique coverage and type combination. I agree. And what really surprised me as well is that not only did a Vigoroth team win the regional, but we actually had more Vigoroths in top 16 than we had Annihilates. <laughs> we had three Vigos, right? And I couldn't even say the Vigoroth team won it. Exactly. The Vigoroth team, the premier Vigoroth team. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it reminded me of when Carbink was introduced and everyone's saying, oh yeah, Carbink is, is going to just upend the meta. It's going to be a brand new Pokemon uh, that just destroys certain things. For example, I said multiple times uh, last season, I said, if there's going to be a Shadow Charizard world champion in Pokemon Go, it has to be this season because Carbink is coming and Carbink is going to just <laughs> annihilate any Charizards. And what, is, what does Wadaj do? the first tournament of this season in the Carbink meta, he brings Shadow Dragonite. It's just like yep. when 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 you think players are going to go to the left, they actually you know take a right turn instead. That's definitely what I saw from the Vigoroth usage here. And I agree with you in terms of the moveset. The shift to close combat is definitely 
more useful for like the Lickitung matchup because the Lickitung Annihilate matchup is notoriously close. And I feel like if you have the close combat, it's almost like teching your Metachamp to Dynamic Punch. It just makes that matchup uncomfortable for the Lickitung. But again, Absolutely. more drawbacks because you lose defense. That's true. Speaking of losing defense in the Lickitung matchup, um, another thing that people might not have figured out just yet is also the speci specific IV combinations that uh, maybe um, shore up some matchups and um, and enable others that might have not been possible otherwise. And I've I've seen talk uh, of high attack Annihilate actually also beating Lickitung consistently. So maybe people get funky with their with their IV combinations. Um, oh, so yeah, I don't don't, don't, don't tell me that because uh, this whole <laughs> event I've been catching Mankeys and I've just oh, been yeah. transferring all of them. <laughs> I transfer I'm not totally bad at catching, but I can build a Master League Annihilate now, and I will as soon as I get a hundo. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody, like, everything was full of mankeys, and I made sure to clean up. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of usage, I think uh, this is actually one of your notes uh, going into the show here. <laughs> this is the first time ever we have not seen a Metacham in top 12 usage. I think that you're correct. I think you're correct in that. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Because when you see at the, when you look at the rest of the notes, okay, what is moving, moving upwards in usage? And I we went over this. It's now the fighter that beats other fighters. That was Metacham's role. It's no longer Metacham's role. Charger Buck plus 9%. Okay, Charger Buck was around earlier. Um, but yeah, the Charger Buck matchup is just really bad for many ever since it had to drop Psychic because that's just a really bad move now. And what stands out the most to me, Azumarill from Portland to Charlotte plus 22% usage. Like that's oh, a yeah. usage spike that's like, this is among the staples now. Like Liga, Azumarill, Lickitung. That's like the big three. And then maybe Charger Buck. No, I agree. I think I think Azumarill is back. The bubble buff was definitely something trainers had their eyes on. We remember the Azumarill of old. I even remember playing in in what we called freestyle tournaments when I was when I was living in Tampa. We'd have those once a week. I remember playing in my freestyle tournaments back in, in 2018, 2019, and playing Azumarill all the way back then. And it's <laughs> it's back into the meta now. I mean, definitely the theme of timeless travels is sticking. And uh, we can we can discuss this later as well, but I, I just want to give everyone listening a little a, a question, something to think about, a, you know, plant a seed in their minds. Um, I think this GBL season has got to be one of the best GBL seasons we've had in a very, very long time. I mean, 2,500 total battles this season. You've got a great league cup available every single week of the season. I mean, this is what Go Battle League should be like, but I'll let I'll let everyone leave leave their thoughts in the comments there uh, and, and we'll see what they think. One thing that surprised me about Charlotte was the number of timeout games. We saw a lot of Lickitung, oh, yeah. a lot of Manda Buzz, and so <laughs> many Whiskash Skull debuffs. Why? Did that surprise you as well? Um, this, the Skull debuffs specific, specifically, um, they surprised me 50% of the time. Um, but no, like the timeout games, I didn't expect them to be that prevalent because we had like... There were games, I remember, I don't remember exactly who was on stage at that time, but it was mirror teams. It was the kind the kind of mirror that takes ages to complete. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the win con was basically to keep more Pokemon alive. And one of the trainers um, basically saw that win con early and made sure to win the lead and keep that Pokemon alive. And in the end, like, okay, both, both trainers had a full health Pokemon available to them. But because the other one had basically this little like 
two HP Pokemon in the back. It was it was so obviously dominant who would win the timeout. And uh-huh. yeah, I don't I'm not a big fan of that playstyle just because um like the type of Pokemon that um initiate those timeout games are typically ones that don't make for the most engaging gameplay. Like I, I mm-hmm. recognize that not all of it is just bulk. It's also spamminess because the charge attack animations just take ages. Um but I feel like um people should try like people should do whatever they want to do but i would love to see people try and break up the current bulk fest with a few spicier and a few more attack heavy options maybe i i just felt all the uh the ultra league specialists just collectively <laughs> get get furious at you for saying that those style of games are not fun because a lot of trainers think the ultra league you know with the extra bulk with the timeout games is actually more exciting because it introduces more win conditions so maybe that's another topic of debate but speaking of of spicy pokemon and fun trainers the most fun trainer to watch this weekend had to be evan right evan 777713 and his shadow zapdos I mean, come on, Swai. He's bringing an electric type to the tournament. He's doing really well. He's a man after your own heart, right? I was rooting for Evan uh, from the start, if I'm being honest. Uh, <laughs> we scrimmed a little going into this. And when I when I saw him, like when he shared his team first and I saw that Shadow Zapdos, I was like, okay, like, I don't know what the man is cooking, but he is cooking something. <laughs> and like finishing top four two times in a row, is insane, especially while doing it with unique picks. Like he went from a Toxapex to um a Shadow Zapdos, who used to be known for his Shadow Beedrill, another spicy yeah. Pokemon that has um featured on like maybe two top cuts in its exact entire existence. And yeah, like I can't wait to see what Evan will bring to Knoxville. Um definitely one of the most entertaining trainers out there currently. I actually did some digging, right? I went to uh, Draco Viz. You mentioned his Beedrill. That's when Evan really kind of broke through and uh, started to build a name for himself. He also brought Shadow Hitmonchan to Arlington last season, where he finished 17th. He brought Victini to Hartford last season, where he finished 33rd. And then he brought Toxapex in San Antonio. And then the Shadow Zapdos Diggersby Core, his two fourth place finishes. He did a really fun uh, breakdown of his tournament on, on his own live stream on Twitch. And he and somebody asked, like, Evan, when are you going to win one? He said, no, I'm, I'm hunting for my next fourth place finish. So, of course, he he likes to have a he likes to have a good time. But we had a lot of trainers, not only from North America, actually find a lot of success. Uh, Javier V20. I, I think that's a trainer that you singled out as well. Absolutely. Like, um, he is the first Peruvian to clinch his world's invite, as far as I'm aware. And yeah, he had a he had a good run. He made top cut. Um and I just love seeing trainers not only compete, but also succeed outside of their own region. Mm-hmm. Because I, I've always loved and enjoyed the global aspect of this game. And yeah, like it was it was a great success story seeing uh, Javier compete so well and do so well. And I think I think also um, another like Central American trainer, uh, Teddy finished third. Oh, so yeah. yeah, that was definitely not only like like it's almost as if the Americans in Charlotte took a little bit of the backseat to the Canadians, the Central Americans, the the South Americans, oh. and yeah, that's that's what I love to see. Just um, talented trainers from all around the world 
um, giving it the best shot and having success in their own way. No, I I completely agree as well. I feel like the the I'll say this time and time again, right? The LATAM community is the single greatest growth opportunity for competitive Pokemon Go uh, in the world because in, in LATAM it's so much easier to have a mobile device instead of buying a console. A lot of the tariffs, the taxes on a Nintendo Switch or a PlayStation or an Xbox are just incredibly high to ship them to Chile, to ship them to Argentina, Peru, even Mexico sometimes. So I think that um, when you see these pictures of Community Day, right? Swagron will post something and there will be 200 people behind him out for something silly like Porygon Classic. It's like, man, these these trainers really love to play Pokemon Go. And I agree. They're so talented. We saw Elche at Worlds last season. Actually, yeah, with make five it Pokemon. So that was far crazy. Five Pokemon with, with one <laughs> hand tied behind his back. He's just dismantling the best trainers in the world. I think that really speaks volumes to the level of talent in Latin America. I, I, I sincerely agree. And I hope that they get more uh, regional championships as well because there's they so much. They did get some new ones just, just recently, right? Like really? three more announced, two in Brazil and uh, one in Chile as far as I'm aware. Oh, so yeah, yeah right. like they had they had this, this empty tournament calendar for the longest time, but Finally, they get some love. I wish they got even more because, as you said, the energy is there. The people are there. And yeah, I just I just hope we, we grow on all those all those continents. I agree. So we have the local tournaments in North America and EU, and I believe local tournaments are starting to spread up in LATAM as well. I love to see uh, a regional in Argentina and in Chile and Mexico City always gets a regional every season hosted by Niantic, which I think is a really cool facet. A lot of people don't really understand that, but the regional championship in Mexico City the past two seasons is not hosted by TPCI. Like TPCI lends support, but it's actually hosted by Niantic, which shows that they have the potential to host regional championships on their own, which I think is super exciting and we should definitely delve more into. Now, speaking of Niantic, we had a GBL hero actually make it to the grand finals. (laughs) Kayshawn, with his first regionals appearance, had been grinding GBL for a long time, actually made it to the finals and lost twice, if I'm not mistaken, to Wild Jeffs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I I honestly... I have nothing but respect and admiration for someone who goes to his first regional ever and just makes it to the grand finals on first try. But what Lyle Jeffs did to Kayshawn in those games, it 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 makes you believe in in the GBL algorithm algorithm just for play Pokemon. <laughs> like uh-huh. those land calls were something else. No, what really uh, surprised me about Lyle Jeff's play in particular is that uh, by game three, he was so dialed into a lot of these team reads that it almost felt like it was an algorithm or something, right? It felt very <laughs> RPS. You could just look at the team and say, all right, Lyle's got this trainer pinned against the mat and there's nothing they can do to get out. But yeah, Kayshawn's super impressive. His line call is also outstanding, but he kind of met his kryptonite in Lyle Jeff's. The only two losses he had all tournament were to the champ. Yeah, like that's like I think you mentioned it in the in the notes as well. That's like a Rubik's Master versus Accent situation. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Keishon wouldn't mind if he meets uh, Lyle Jeffs at Worlds again to maybe uh, have a little have a little um, revenge in in the finals potentially. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a long way to go until then. But yeah, the, mm-hmm. the similarities are striking. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, moving to the the stream itself, a new segment kind of debuted, the Trainer Spotlights. So typically we hear from our regional champions, right? We've all seen the Wadaj video, the Dunebug video, etc. Uh, even the Zweilers video, I'm not sure if there was one made. Maybe you can... <laughs> You can, you know, wink, wink at the camera if, if that's the case. But, I, um, I don't actually think there was one. Like I had, I gave a little interview after the fact, but I don't think that was actually for like TPCI. That was just for the production or like the, the company that hosted the event itself. So I don't think that will be used for one of those little reels. Gotcha. Well, they, uh, I think that the production did a, a great job of spotlighting trainers who maybe don't win regional championships, but are still notable trainers in the community. Maybe they've appeared on stream a couple of times and they attend uh, maybe one or, or two or three or four events per season. They featured Mama Climbs during one segment that I watched uh, this weekend. And I thought it was great because getting to know these trainers that maybe are not uh, winning at a very high level all the time, but are still trying, still consistent. I think that's really, really fun. And there's so many unique personalities in the Pokemon Go space. Uh, just off the top of your head, Swai, if you could feature one trainer in a spotlight, who would it be? Um, I want to think specifically of, of North Americans too. And like we've, we've talked about Evan already. Like Evan, Evan is not only a great battler, but also a bit of a character, very creative team builder. I think you could have a very fun segment about him. But another name that I thought managed to shine this weekend and also did so in like a very unique fashion is actually Buckeye Fitzy because mm -hmm. I do think that the whole Fitzgerald family has been like a staple of play Pokemon events for the longest time and some people looked at them like okay yeah I think that's that's pretty cute that's pretty sweet that they basically travel from event to event with like all the kids and both parents compete and but I feel like when Bakai Fitzy um, managed to qualify for Worlds last year, he didn't really get the respect some of the maybe um, more GBL savvy trainers got for their for their respective Worlds qualifications. So him qualifying for Worlds again through points um, at the Charlotte Regional and having probably the most entertaining set of the entire tournament against Dunberg, oh, yeah. um, those were those were great moments. And his wife made winners finals as well, as far as I'm aware, on, on day one. So that was like, I I I feel like a Fitzy family spotlight would be would be a fun thing as well. Oh no, I absolutely agree, and I and I remember uh, uh, Khaleesi Fitzy actually making waves. I think she might have been the first in the family to really kind of uh, draw attention with her Lapras play. Yeah, I distinctly which... remember that Shadow Lapras. I was a big fan of that pick back in the day as well. Yeah, that was amazing. I believe it was in in Salt Lake City, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, Khaleesi Fitzy was was uh, really incredible with her plays, and the Lapras pick was amazing. Of course, my beautiful fiance Morita, she loves the Lapras, and seeing that appear on the camera, she instantly was like, "Oh my god, I'm a fan!" And she even asked me to take a, a photo with Khaleesi to send to her because obviously uh -huh. she's in in Mexico and she wanted to just you know have a piece of that moment. So I think that that those kinds of trainers can really. Uh, find ways to relate to viewers that maybe converts viewers into players in the future. And I also think it's important because they travel as a family to all these events. And uh, based on, you know, Pokemon being primarily uh, targeted at younger players, I think that finding ways to spotlight families who 
take the extra effort, who go the extra mile to attend events and try to, you know, make it a family uh, outing, you know, family vacation to go to a, a regional. I think that's really cool. And we need Absolutely. to spotlight that more as well. So I agree with you. The trainer that I would pick for a spotlight has got to be Valor Ash. And uh, it's because he's just been in the game for so long. I mean, if you remember back to the, uh, the Sylph days with the mega tournaments, just right before the pandemic kind of changed the whole world, Valor Ash was at the top of the game. I mean, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of trainers that could really compete with him. And I distinctly remember him winning the Orlando Mega Tournament and seeing House Stark and Toshi and and every all the uh, you know the the Elite Four just kind of dogpile him when he came out of the room. And this is a guy who not only not only was winning tournaments, but he was also holding classes to teach people how to time their charge attacks, you know, the different typings, the different matchups. I mean, he's a, a, an educator, a very thorough thinker. And I think he gave a really inspiring interview with a lot of perspective because he's been in the game, you know, as long as, as long as we have. So I'd love to see him spotlighted at some point. Yeah. I really like um, to listen to him talk. So I wouldn't mind a, a segment dedicated to him. Um, yeah, as you said, like I've not actually been PvPing for all that long. Most of the in-person sylph actually took place before my time. But when I really got into the game, Valor Ash was definitely one of the household names that everybody knew and that everybody referred to as one of those goated battlers with like some signature picks. And still to this day, like the talent flame comes out every regional. <laughs> oh, and yeah. just just like both going back in time, but still featuring someone who is so relevant today with like just multiple, multiple really um, strong regional performances. Um, I definitely agree. Like that's like one of the prime candidates for a segment like that. I, I don't want to to make him sound like an old person, but Valorash <laughs> was playing this game back when switching out didn't clear debuffs. So if you icy wind into something with your cloister and switched it out, it came right back out of that Pokeball and it was still debuffed. All right, that's how long he's been in the game. <laughs> I heard Valorash used to play Pokemon Go on a Nokia. That's that's what I heard. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> unstoppable, right? <laughs> uh, an unbreakable trainer with a with an unbreakable, <laughs> an unbreakable device. Phone. But speaking of of production, we had a couple of controversial moments this weekend. Uh, Let's start with the lighthearted one, and then we can get into a more (laughs) serious one. Uh, There was an interview that I think we we should talk about. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, Nighttime Clasher. It was actually not his uh, casting debut. He actually made that in Bochum, Germany uh, last year. I was at the tournament. I, I met him back then, and I had no idea who the guy was. And nobody else had an idea who the guy was because he was very new to the game. He did have casting experience, but yeah, um, apparently he liked the experience um, that he had in Bochum and he got really good at the game. And now he casted his first um, North American regional. And I think he did a great job. He became a lot more knowledgeable about the game um, ever since he started getting into competing at play Pokemon events. And uh, I do think his his energy and his wit really man- managed to shine through in a lot of his casting moments. And he he also probably delivered the most um, <laughs> the funniest, but also like slightly controversial interview moment when he had a double interview with Pocket's friends, like <laughs> out of pocket, formerly known as Hot Pocket, um, getting ready on the stage for for his next match. And there we had Onion Frank, who had a great run of, of his own, and, and Badash, like 
you need some uh, introduction. Um, being interviewed about their friendship and uh, their respective runs, and it was, for the most part, pretty pretty wholesome and fun. But it also felt like a bit of shade was thrown uh, during that interview. Oh, and yeah. I don't know whether everybody appreciated it all that much. But like my personal opinion on that matter, it was in good fun. It was in good fun. Like you know these guys, you know they're 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 jokesters of some sort. And uh-huh. Vadash trying to hold in hold in his laugh while <laughs> being asked serious questions and asking and answering in a slightly less than serious manner. Um, I I did enjoy that and I hope that nobody felt seriously hurt by that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was great. I, I thought it was um it was definitely cringe, right? There were lots of <laughs> yes, there were lots was. of cringe moments and like dead <laughs> moments in the interview where i was thinking like okay are they gonna are they gonna end this soon or uh or are they gonna cut away like what's happening here it was it kind of reminded me of of the uh the crimson interview at oh NAIC. yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> where, where you know you, at any moment they could cut it and say okay this is too much uh but no it was it was really when, funny because when crimson it, shouted out his big wife yeah that was also big pretty <laughs> I love that so much. And she was standing you know, like off stage. And he pointed at her and everything. I, I I was looking at her. I was like, hey. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it was it was hilarious because, you know, Wadaj, Onion and and Pocket, you know, they <laughs> they grew up uh on memes, right? Like they are, yeah. are literal meme <laughs> factories. So when they get a chance to actually talk, uh, there's there's a 90% chance that they're not gonna say anything serious. Or anything yep. sincere, they're just gonna troll the whole time. So uh, seeing them like try to give funny answers, and then Wadaz just breaking, you know, like like <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy Fallon in an SNL skit where he just starts laughing because he can't hold it in. That's exactly what happened. And I, I just want to say, Clasher was the perfect person to interview them. Right, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. He completely matched their energy and still yes. managed to um, like keep up that veneer of play Pokemon seriousness while doing so. And like, while it, I, I don't know, maybe it made it a little more cringe, but it also yeah. just enabled this fun, memorable moment. And yeah, I think it was good television overall. <laughs> it, it was great. Yeah. Because, because when I started laughing and whereas, you know, a more, uh, how do I say, like, like tightly wound caster uh, would have just, you know, kind of ignored him and just let the moment yeah, pass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Flasher turns to him. He's like, oh, I see that you're laughing. What is, it, what is that about? Would you like to explain? And of course, he's putting him uh-huh. on the spot. And this is, you know, this is the same nighttime clasher who wore a chef's hat on stage. Exactly. And, and he also gave that interview with Pokemon Go tips. And he said, when the opponent is weak, you should throw your nuke move. You should return a 2 HP Azumarill. That, that's good manners is what he said. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> uh, uh, NTC is, is a great guy. He's got a lot of experience in different uh, esports as well, including mobile games. And he's kind of collecting mobile games like Infinity Stones. And I've been <laughs> really impressed with how quickly he's learned the game, especially his day two casting. I actually haven't told him this, but I felt like his day two casting was really at the next level because he was talking about uh, breakpoints and bulk points, which I don't think has ever been discussed on the stream. He was also talking about uh, wind conditions. He was making shielding predictions. I mean, his... Um, feel for the game his in-game knowledge is definitely advanced and granted he's, yeah, he's only been sure. playing for like a year and a half right like you were exactly saying. exactly like he's been super dedicated with the amount of tournaments he went to and like the amounts of scrims he put into improving so yeah it does make sense that he went from like basically a nobody to someone who can just 
recite the most intricate PvP facts off the top of his head. Um, and yeah, it was it was great to see him put that into practice. And I do also agree that um, maybe like at the start of the day one broadcast, there was a little bit of leftover nervousness, but he managed to shake that off super well really quickly. No, he really did. And you know, some people are just are just built for the camera, right? They they get into a <laughs> a uh, you know a moment where the spotlight is on them, and they just kind of take control and then pilot their way through. He's definitely one of those style of people. Uh, but so I I think I, I think we need to touch on this other piece of controversy that's a little bit more serious, and then we can talk oh, yeah. about some meta trends and the grand finals. Mm-hmm. But this controversy in particular uh, was at the heart of a match review that. Uh, honestly, it's very debatable how this should have gone. Basically, the the error in question is damage registration error. Now, in terms of turn speeds and how that works, would you like to to explain that, or would you like for me to take over that part? Um, I can I can explain that uh, rather concisely. So we had a game between I think Beach and House Stark. Yes. And um, House Stark had a Reggie Steel. Beach had a Charger Bug. The Charger Bug was very low on HP. So it got to its discharge that would have turned the tides of the game at exactly one HP. But because um, a one-turn charge move like the Registeel's lock-on takes prior- priority over charge move activation, the charger bug fainted with the move loaded. So that's basically what happened, and that got disputed. And this is, as far as I'm aware, as far as I see it in um, everyday Go Battle League, the intended mechanic. Um, but it got disputed and it got awarded a rematch that actually managed to flip the entire series. Yes. Yeah, no, beautifully said. Uh, that's exactly what happened. And I've actually noticed this in my own uh, GBL games. I think Though Tactical also published a video detailing this bug and how inconsistent it can be. Uh, the best example I can think of is a five-turn incinerate versus a four-turn volt switch. If you got a charge bug versus town flame matchup, right? The town flames incinerate damage should apply on turn five, the same turn that you're activating your discharge. And half the time you get the discharge and half the time you don't. So exactly like you said, the registeel lock-on uh, applying before the charge attack was in question, and that's really what flipped the entire series. Now, uh, Niantic did release a blog post saying that this is how the game should work, but in practice, it definitely feels inconsistent. I think it'd be worth it to test in a tournament environment, you know, a non-GBL environment where you're where you're on um, different networks, maybe in a you know tournament environment where you're on shared wi-fi i like to see how the testing goes for that and see how consistent it is and uh maybe how we can move forward but uh our world champion it's accent tweeted out said saying that dre damage registration error being disputable is a dangerous precedent to set and i agree with him because it can definitely flip a lot of situations uh so i am not going to ask you how you would have rolled in that situation (laughs) but i feel like because it's such an inconsistent mechanic at least as far as we know right now maybe upon further further testing we could disprove that because it's so inconsistent i don't know i mean uh, i guess in my official role i can't say whether or not it should be disputed Mm -hmm. but i have doubts yeah, um, I do not have an official role. First of all, I do want to say um, I appreciate the effort that all the judges put into making these events possible for everyone. And I do not want to discourage any competitor from from um, asking the judges to review a game situation where they think um, the game acted in a way that favored their opponent or maybe... Uh, prevented them from executing a play that they thought they should be able to execute. So 
with that being the the preface of of my opinion, I do think this was a decision um, that is very difficult to justify, just because in the majority of situations, the way this game played out is how you would expect it to be playing out. Um, I do think the damage registration error got um, normalized as uh, something. So damage re registration error being something like, okay, you do get the move off. Um, basically, in the moment, you should be fainting. Um, that has been normalized as a so-called new mechanic over like years and years. That was like the colloquial term for it up until recently. And the word mechanic implies that it's intentional, that it's intentional game behavior. And it was intentional for at least a day. Um, and the, uh, the Niantic blog post um, speaks to that. I do think it is very likely that very shortly after that blog post was released, um, this new mechanic was actually reverted back to the old way it was supposed to work, which is, okay, um, damage uh, applying takes um, prior priority over charge move activation. But we never got an official confirmation by Niantic for that. So there is this gray area where you could argue, okay, um, you should be able to get your uh, charge move off while the damage um, is registering. But I do think it's a bit of a slippery slope just because in practice, in actuality, it doesn't play out that way for like probably 80% of the time, maybe even more often. So I do think in, in formats like in grassroots, grassroots formats such as Sylph, there were rules that specified that if something is just the state of the game, it cannot be disputed. And I would argue that um, the uh, charge move, uh, the um, damage registration error not occurring, so the game basically allowing the charger bug to faint and not to get its move off, that is what is to be expected. That is the state of the game, and the state of the game should probably not be disputed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fair point, right? And we talked about state of game issues in the past, which are definitely different from def wins or any other, uh, you know, rule that the Silph Arena or Play Pokemon has tried to enforce. But uh, yeah, it's it's such a great area, and in setting the precedent of making that debatable. I agree with your first point that you made. Trainers should never uh, be nervous to ask a judge for you know a review or to, to question how a game should have gone. I think that everybody should feel like they can they can dispute something if they feel like maybe the the outcome wasn't was uh, was unjust or was not uh, how it's supposed to work. But yeah, it's a really great area, and I would leave it up to everyone listening to uh, maybe leave a comment on our post on X and let us know what you think, if DRE should be disputable or not. Um, my personal opinion, uh, I think it needs further testing, and then we can kind of go from there and figure out what the best path forward should be. But speaking to the meta overall, we touched on Annihilate. We talked about a couple of spicy Pokemon, but some of these meta trends are surprising. And one that I want to point out is the trend towards double or even triple flyers on these teams uh, in our top 16, right? Six teams had only one flyer, eight teams had double flyers, and then two teams had triple flying type Pokemon on their team. NTC did a good job breaking down the roles of the different flyers. I think when he was casting, I believe, Onion Frank. But I'm curious what you think is why. I mean, 
it seems like electric coverage exists, but the flyers are still persisting. Can you crack this code or do you know what's going on? <laughs> I do think um, like if we look just at which flyer was um, the most uh, prevalent, the most popular, you see that Gliger tops those charts and Gliger is actually an electric type counter. So if you have a Gliger on your team, you basically already have a something that covers the main weakness of your your other flyers. So I think Gliger, Skarmory, it's it's technically two flyers, but it's also almost a core. Same with Gliger, Pelipper. They just complement each other really well because their their subtyping makes them um, just super, super flexible and super unique in their roles, as has been pointed out on the broadcast. So Gliger is just... It's, it's, it's just atypical, right? And especially with uh, Skarmory and the, the buffed Steelwing being such a threat to um, common ice types, um, such as Frostlass, which actually made quite the triumphant re- return at this tournament on Kayshawn's team, um, I do think that threats for Flyers are pretty much down in usage. Um, besides the Charger Bug, and there's other ways of covering for the Charger Bug, for example, when you um, consider the amount of Whiskash, like more than 50% of day two trainers had a Whiskash on their team. If you have a Whiskash and a Gliger, that's already two matchups that's, that a charge bug really wants to avoid. So why not bring another flyer? Like It will likely be, be relatively safe. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that Gligar is uh, the, the best word uh, is the one you used, atypical. It's a Pokemon that can do everything a flyer needs to do. It can also be an anti-steel, anti-rock uh, with, with dig, and it can also counter electric, which is just really bizarre. And uh, like you said, the antithesis to Gligar would be an ice type Pokemon. And since uh, Shadow Lowland Sand Slash has generally fallen out of favor, at least in Charlotte, I think that it's the prime time for all these flying types to kind of take over. And a lot of people are kind of doubling up on roles, right? Like they're making Skarmory their steel type, which typically Skarmory would be your flying type. But because of the steel wing uh, buff, it's been able to kind of take a new role. And then we saw out of pocket using Altaria. He was on demon mode uh, or demon time (laughs) all weekend, right? Wearing all black on stage. He just was not phased by anything that happened. He really wants to make 2024 his year. And you could see that in his, in his play, just using Altaria to just melt through things. So Yes, Dragon is still good, but I think there's a lot of play for all these different flying type Pokemon. I will say you you mentioned Whiskash as well. Five out of our top eight had a counter user. And then if you look at the bottom eight, right, spots nine through 16, six Mud Boys and only two counter users. So even though uh, there's a lot of Whiskash, a lot of the Whiskash kind of finish at the bottom half of our top 16. Yeah. Boom. Mic drop. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I have I have been um like because I'm in Europe and we are recording on Tuesday evening. I actually did um play the um Barboach Spotlight Hour to finally get a Whiskash that um is play, play Pokemon ready basically. And I do personally think that um Whiskash is probably the best anti steel currently, but there's also not that many steel as you said like. Skarmory is kind of taking on that role for many teams. And while Reggie still, still sees some success, um, it's not as common as we've seen it in the past. And also Alolan Sandslash, nowhere to be found in Charlotte. Yeah, exactly. It, it was extinct 
for lack of a, a better phrase. Um, Alolan Sandslash is definitely a powerful Pokemon. Uh, famously, it's Axon used it to win the World Championship, and then we saw trainers like a Mind Joke uh, using it quite a bit in EU as well. There seem to be two very strong team archetypes that are sticking out to me. The first is obviously the Lyle Jeff slash Abinov team, which is you know the the Vigoroth, the Whiskash, the Gligar, the Lickitung, and then the other one seems to be the Dunebug archetype, which I categorize that by the trio of Mandibuzz. Uh, Skeledurge, excuse me, excuse me, Registeel, Skeledurge, and Cresselia. The flyers kind of get swapped out here from from time to time, but um, those seem like the two strongest team archetypes. I, if I'm not mistaken, we saw something different from Kayshawn with his Frostlass, but Teddy was playing the Skeledurge and he was playing it really, really well up until the final moments of his run. Yeah, like I do think um, Skeledurge is in a bit of a weird spot right now because. Not only are people doubling up on, on flying types, which are so-so for Skeledurge, like it doesn't really want to see Gligar, but it can at least um, like hold its own against the Gligar. It probably doesn't win that matchup, but incinerates just Chunk. Um, then it's good against Skarm. It's not as good into Water Flyers. It's not as good into Altaria, but it can do something against it. So it's like always like a mixed back against Flyers, but it's not only double Flyers. It's also double water a lot. Like we don't see, or we, we barely see any pure grass types anymore. Um, most grass types are Cresselia's Alicitung that only have grass coverage and aren't actually off the grass subtyping. So that that just means um, that yeah, with with that threat basically extinct. Uh, water types run rampant. And mm-hmm. Azu, one of the popu- most popular picks, um, Whiskash, also featuring on a lot of top cut teams. It's very difficult to maneuver Skeledurge around those. And I feel like you almost have to team build in a way that you have two teams in one. That, of course, you have your Pokemon that um, play well into basically everything, your generalists. But then Pokemon that also are able to take on specific archetypes of teams that your opponent might bring. Because some might feel a squad of six Pokemon that is just terribly weak to Skeledurge. And others might have a team where there's, oh, two hard counters, three checks, and oh, there's a charger bug. But good luck lining your Skeledurge up against it. It's a it's a high-risk, high-reward Pokemon. But the one thing I like about Skeledurge is that if you manage its energy really well, it can always put a dent into its counters. And I think Teddy in particular did a really good job at that in in Charlotte. I I agree with you. I feel like especially after Dunebug won San Antonio, we saw a huge pivot more towards Whiskash Gligar core. And those two Pokemon obviously are disastrous for Skeledurge to go up against. So I do think the environment is inhospitable. And if you bring that Skeledurge, that's why a Pokemon like Cresselia pairs with it so well, because Cresselia can counter all those those typical Pokemon that would otherwise give Skeledurge a hard time. And I agree, having two teams in one is critical, but that just puts a ton of stress on your team building as a Skeledurge <laughs> enjoyer. Uh but speaking of teams, Lyle Jeffs was able to win the Charlotte Regionals. Um, 
his run was impressive, right? He was playing the team that Abinov won the previous regional with in Portland, but he did say kind of subtly during his interview, he says, yeah, I've been playing this team for over a month and uh, he didn't seem too happy when other people said it was Abinov's team. So I'm going to call it the Lyle slash Abinov team. And of course uh, that is the, uh, the team of six, Whiskash, Azumarill, Vigoroth, Chargebug, Shadow Gligar, and Lickitung. We also saw Elam play that team in the tournament. But one interesting anecdote I want to add about Lyle was that he was actually the first trainer featured on stream at the event versus Poppin' Bubbles. And Poppin' Bubbles was playing Lorantis and Annihilate, and Lyle barely won game two, right? He lost game one. He barely won game two because his Azumarill had just a few HP and he got to a last second ice beam against the leafage Lorantis that he, that he was <laughs> battling. And uh, he almost had uh, had to, you know, follow in Dune's footsteps, falling to that loser's bracket in round one because he was sweating against Poppin' Bubbles. Yeah, and I like I watched that set and a trainer, like a lesser trainer than um, Lyle would have probably dropped against Poppin' Bubbles because oh, Poppin' yeah, Bubbles played it really well. He had that spicy pick. He managed to um like mostly also find the, the right spot for it. Um and Lyle basically had to play as clean as humanly possible. <laughs> and he managed to do so and he didn't stop doing that for the entirety of the tournament. So yeah he really set him up set himself up for success early by um, managing to power through that tense moment in the first game and on stream as well. Like that just adds, adds more pressure to it. Yeah. I mean, you said setting himself up for success. I agree as well because pop and bubbles did have Skarmory and you could tell in that set that Skarmory was a headache for Lyle to deal with. And I think that getting that gritty win against pop and bubbles in the first round really helped set him up for his eventual matchups versus K Sean also piloting the Skarmory. Now Lyle Jeffs did win a three Oh victory over K Sean to sweep the grand finals. It seems like we get more bracket resets than we, we, you know, have just sweeps, but Lyle was able to win that first round and not, uh, you know, battle K Sean a second time. So huge congrats to Lyle. My question to you though, now that we're speaking about winners in your own opinion, who is the best North American trainer that hasn't won a regional yet? Hmm. The best North American that has won a regional yet. I, mean, I think there's, there's like three answers that come to mind. I will keep it at one. I think it's probably Arrow. Arrow has been to so many. He's been super close. Um, at least at least twice, probably even even more times. Like he's been top cutting regularly. He's playing unique team compositions. Um I do think I do think he's overdue a victory, and I would not be surprised to see that happen um relatively soon. I agree. Arrow's incredibly talented. I think that his team building is also uh, just as unpredictable as his play style, right? E either he's playing Frostlass and Canto Ninetales against uh, Kimi Sui back last season, or he's playing Carbink Skarmory versus Dunebug uh, this season. There's, there's just really no telling what Arrow is thinking, and I think that he always throws people uh, for a loop. I agree. I think Arrow is, is very close to a breakthrough. My pick, though, is going to be Elam, because I feel oh. like uh, Elam is, is just, he's incredibly talented. He's incredibly patient and he's also very gritty, right? He, in my mind, Elam is kind of like the antithesis to how, um, 
how uh, Stone Collection plays in EU. <laughs> and, you know, when, when the match is over, Stone Collection just, he stops shielding. Maybe he only throws a few fast attacks. You know, he's kind of passive in, in, in the end game. But Elam is the opposite. Elam is like, okay, if I have one chance to catch this attack, I'm going to make the switch. If I can throw a Scald and maybe get the debuff here and give myself a chance, I'm going to do it. Until the until the the bell rings, right, so to speak, Elam is fighting through those matches. I think he does a really good job, and I think that grit will eventually be rewarded because he has come close, you know, even against yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Wadaj on his first regional win last season in Hartford, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Elam pushed hard. I mean, he pushed he pushed Wadaj really hard, even though it felt like Wadaj was was playing on another level and was just going to win it all. And I think that. Uh, like Arrow, you know, coming up second a few times is frustrating, and maybe they'll they'll con- they'll evolve into Pato Man and, and win one. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was about to make the same comparison. Like <laughs> if you if you finish second twice, like just just do a Pato Man and just win the next one. Yeah, Elam <laughs> like super consistent on a high level. I do think I do think trainers like um, Elam who like he doesn't really stray away too far from the core meta, but he's just incredibly precise and patient and he doesn't he doesn't give his opponents any breathing room at all i feel and that's that's what makes him so consistent like i, I just pulled up his his track of his profile and his last five tournaments second place um and not as good showing in orlando second place seventh place seventh place like if you finish a uh, top eight four out of five times in your last tournaments like that is just like you're you're overdue a win probably like that mm-hmm. that level of consistency is very difficult to achieve yeah you know, i mean we talk about top cutting you know being consistent we called axon mr top cut last season but at the same time you know getting getting top 3 or top 4 at multiple tournaments is just another level as well well, that's why we're going to talk about the championship points update, our picks for Liverpool, and some in-game events. But is there anything else you wanted to mention about Charlotte before we move on to those other topics? Um, I would personally say that we that we covered all the bases, and I'm really looking forward to look ahead to to what's coming next. Yeah, me too. And coming up next is Liverpool. That's the next regional championship on our calendar. I'm always excited to see what EU does with the current meta. And as we've discussed in our previous episode, it's never exactly what we would think as North Americans. So <laughs> I'm really excited to kind of, you know, kind of push push the ball back into your court and see how things go in EU. Do you have any uh, any predictions about Pokemon that might come or trainers that might succeed? Or what are your general thoughts? Can I say Obama Snow again? I don't want yeah, to say sure. Obama Snow again. Because if you look at um, the the Avinav team, which appears to be the the gold standard now, like you have play into like you have amazing play into Westcash. You do beat Azu. It's a little closer than you would hope it to uh, hope for it to be, but it's still a positive matchup. Um, if you run the non shadow with Icy Wind, you do beat Lickitung in all even shield scenarios. Vigoroth is tough. Um, then there is Charger Bug, which uh, depends on on the shooting scenario, but you can also take a win there. And uh, what was the last Pokemon? I don't think it was that bad. Oh, it was a Gliga. Yeah, that's not terrible okay. for uh, an Obama Snow either. So, yeah, I personally think of Obama Snow as um, aggressive Lickitung because you do have that Pokemon that doesn't want to take counters, but it has the grass coverage and it also has a decent enough uh, Gliga matchup. And it's not as tanky, it's um, a little more fast paced, it gets to its moves really quickly. It has a lot of the same wins. And I do think that 
like most people bring bring Lickitung on their team. Why don't why don't bring two of those? Bring Lickitung and Obama Snow, and you have like the one thing that can also protect your other thing from from like a Skeledurge. Um and you'll be good to go. This thing wins against everything that's not a counter user, basically. <laughs> yeah. You also need oh. to protect from from Scummery, but Well well what about Skeledurge, right? That's your that's your third kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like Skeledurge, I, I personally think Skeledurge Obama Snow is a core. I feel like huh. just just if you can't beat them, join them and <laughs> I love it. I, I love Skeledurge, it. Skeledurge Obama he... Snow's core is going to win Liverpool. You heard it here first. Wow. Quote him. Quote him. Let's put that in a, in a quote image. Uh, you know, with the, with the black and white filter and just your face, you know. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that's a really good call out. Obama Snow, definitely flexible. That ice type coverage like we were talking about is so lacking in the current meta. No Sandslash to be seen. Uh, we saw Kayshawn playing Frostlass. Maybe it's time for ice to return in a new form. And maybe that form could be Obama Snow. Uh, my key pick for Liverpool, I'm going I'm going the chaotic route here is why. I'm choosing Trevenant as my pick for Liverpool. Against against the warnings and uh, and concerns of yourself and another close <laughs> friend of mine, TZ Spanx, who does not agree. I think that, uh, that Trevenant is going to be the pick because if you look at a lot of these matchups, especially if Annihilate usage goes up, I don't care that there's a Lickitung and a Gligar on every team, all right? I, I want to see a Trevenant, C-bomb a Whiskash, and then Shadowclaw down Annihilate. That's what I want to see, and that's what I think we'll get. I actually looked into the Trev Sims before this podcast because I've heard you talk about that tree, and it has a very impressive win rate. However, if your two hardest counters are Gliger and Lickitung, in a meta where every second person, or maybe even more than those, like both of them are above 50% usage, are playing like Lickitung Gliger core, you will you will probably like live by the RPS, die by the RPS. Like that's just that's just what comes with Trevin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, uh, I mentioned him a moment ago, TZ Spanx, uh, who's been, been my coach for at least a couple seasons, you know, on and off. Uh, TZ said that Cresselia makes a lot more sense. That's like the, the, you know, the neutral pick, the, the neutral good pick. I'm, I'm chaotic, right? I, I'm picking Trevenant. Live by the RPS, die by the RPS. Uh, but speaking of uh, living and dying, you got about 134 days or so until you can no longer gather championship points to qualify for Worlds in Honolulu, Hawaii. And as we take a look here at the championship points leaderboards, I just want to call out that uh, Flying Pizza, I just saw his name right here. Flying Pizza has 444 points. You need 500 in NA in order to qualify. So he's definitely very close. We'd love to see Flying Pizza compete at Worlds. And our friend Nighttime Clasher has almost 600 points himself. So not (laughs) only is he cooking on the caster booth, he is also already qualified for Worlds. He is probably um, among the highest scoring Europeans now because he is studying abroad in Maastricht, Netherlands. And yeah, I've I've seen pictures uh, of him or from him on Twitter where he basically is, is driving around the German autobahn. And yeah, nice. he's probably going to mess up um, the odds uh, European regional in the, in the near future. <laughs> I'd be excited to see it. You never know what nighttime clasher is cooking up. Taking a look at Latam, we do have our trainer um, Harjef still leading the world with seven hundred and fifty championship points of course the threshold for latam i believe is is 300 points if not mistaken 
Um, it looks like a lot of trainers have already qualified for Worlds and a few on the cusp, like Emilio Javier V20 that we did see in Charlotte, Just Muniz, as well as Patrick e. Albany. So really excited to see some of those trainers actually living in Brazil. They have those regionals coming up. Should be a unique opportunity. But I think it'd be really cool, so I honestly, to develop a, a tracking chart for championship oh. points <laughs> so we can watch trainers like move up and progress and kind of track the race yeah i want to see like one of those interactive graphics that you sometimes see on social media where they oh like in 1920 they had this many like fast yeah. food chain restaurants from this specific brand and then it changes over time and just with championship points and one thing i want to call out is uh, javier um i just think um the play pokemon website isn't updated yet i do think um, that Charlotte actually pushed him over the edge for world's qualification. Oh, that's amazing. Well, congratulations to Javier for qualifying. Once those points do apply, I really am curious as well to see how many trainers are going to qualify for worlds this season, because in the past, you know, it's been, it hasn't been the biggest for Pokemon go, but I'm excited to see if the point system will change that and we'll have a wider field of competitors. Speaking to in-game events and updates, we kind of foreshadowed the Raging Battles event on the last episode. We've got another event, but the news is not as good. Taking Treasures starts on January 27th, and Varum will be appearing in 12 Kilometer Eggs. That's why I've got terrible news. Varum and its evolution, Reverum, they're bad. They're really bad. They're steel poison types, and they both go 9 and 33 in the Great League meta. They sound so unique. They sound so unique. I wish they were good. Apparently they're not. I think they have like poison jab, acid spray, and overheat, which like on the face of it, not the worst, like rather unique, but I do think their their stat product is kind of lacking. They're also not too quick to their moves. So probably a spice pick, probably a dex filler, but nothing too relevant. Yeah, nothing that's going to um to really kind of excite or upset trainers the way that Annihilate did in this uh this past regional. Uh, that being said, Swai, I mean, I think we've covered everything for Charlotte. We've got Liverpool to look forward to. I believe you'll be there. I can't even remember if we oh, mentioned yeah. that on the show yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think in the introduction, I briefly touched on it. But yeah, I will be at Liverpool and I will also be at the um, event in Dortmund in February. But yeah, we'll have another North American regional between those two in Knoxville. So it's a busy schedule. It's a busy schedule. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited. Battlers meeting all around the world as we continue on our race to qualify for the World Championships in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, well, I think that's a wrap for us. Why I don't have anything else to add. Uh, a pleasure as always. Knock this out <laughs> in about an hour and two minutes. And oh, yeah. uh, best of luck in Liverpool. And I'm really excited to see how you do. And uh, hopefully you can keep your, your win rate at 100%, right? Oh yeah, I'm I'm trying to do that, and uh, if I'm the only one bringing Obama Snow Skeletage Core, I'm pretty confident that I, I will manage to win that one too. All right, well, sounds good. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you after Liverpool, and we'll uh, dissect those results as well. Sound good? For sure, for sure. Looking forward to it. All right, so I right, take care. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.